Our guest speaker today is Matthew Wilson, Pastor Chuck Wilson's son. The title of the sermon is The Enemy Within, and I hope that you guys gain an understanding as to why I titled it that by the end. But this sermon has been born out of a lot of debates, a lot of uh, arguments, a lot of studying, a lot of reading, a lot of thinking. It's been a long time in the making, so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that the points get across well. Uh, it might feel a little bit more like a, uh, a class rather than a sermon. There aren't going to be a ton of stories. It's not going to be super. It's really exciting stuff, but you've got to pay attention and follow the, the line of thought, the reasoning. Otherwise, it's not going to be exciting for you. Um, so throughout the, the sermon, you, you heard the text is James 1, 13 to 15. But I, I think that this text is going to show us how sinful re, we really are by helping us understand the nuances um, between temptation, desire, and sin, and how they all kind of work together. So my hope is also for us uh, to understand how to fight our sin at the root rather than simply at the fruit. And most importantly, more, the deeper of a grasp we get of our sin and our sinfulness, uh, the, the more valuable and beautiful Christ becomes. So the end goal is that, is to see Christ for who he is um, by seeing us for who we are. We can't really see Christ as beautiful unless we understand the depth of our deprav- depravity is essentially what it is. So the structure of the sermon is as follows. Uh, we'll talk about temptations the sinfulness of desire, and then I'm going to really try and uh, bring it down to earth for us and walk us through how it would look in our daily lives. But this is going to take some legwork. It just is, and I tried to cut it down as much as I can, uh, but we'll see, you know, we'll see how it goes. All right, uh, let's, let's pray before we get into the word. Lord God, I, I come before you and I, I just ask that you would have mercy on us, that you would Open up our ears, soften our hearts, so that we would uh, take the truths of the word, of your word, and, and try to live in light of them. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're open up to James 1.13 to 15, I'll start reading now. We're going to be reading out of the NIV. I'm going to refer to other translations because I think it's helpful at certain times, but we're in the NIV. All right, so James writes, When tempted, no one should say, God has tempted me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So the first concept that I want us to understand is how James is defining temptations. In verse 14, you'll notice that James says that each person is tempted when they're dragged away and enticed by their own evil desire. So this is our definition for temptation. It's a temptation from within, from our sinful natures. This isn't something that we can blame on anybody else. It's not from the outside. It's from our own natures. So we're essentially, we're tempting ourselves. When we're speaking about temptations, there are generally two different ways that we can talk about temptations. A temptation from without and a temptation from within. The one that James is talking about is the temptation from within. The temptation from without can be defined as a temptation that, uh, or where the enticement to sin is from outside of us. It's from outside of our natures. So for example, we see this in Matthew 4 when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness 
uh, we read that Jesus was tempted by the devil. And that's in, in contrast, stark contrast to what we see in James, where he says we are tempted by our own desires. So already, by the devil, outside, by our own desires. And by, the, by outside, there could be many things that could be outside of us that we're tempted by. Um, but the one that we're going to be looking at is the enticement to sin from within. That's the temptation that we're talking about. This is from our very beings. A good illustration of this would be like lust. So you see someone and you desire them, and that's a desire from the inside. And so you're tempted to go farther with that desire that's already within you. Um, John Owen, he's a great Puritan theologian. He, uh, he's a master when it comes to sin. He writes in his, I think this was in his book, On Temptation and Desire, something like that. But he says, quote, Now, when such a temptation comes from without, it is unto the soul an indifferent thing, neither good nor evil, unless it be consented unto. But the very proposal from within, it being the soul's own act, is its sin. So when we experience these inward temptations, these desires within us that are drawing us away and enticing us to sin outwardly, we've already sinned because we're desiring sin. That's essentially John Owen's point. But many fail to make this distinction in their processing of temptations and desires. So for example, um, I recently read an article by a writer of the Gospel Coalition. If you don't know who the Gospel Coalition is, they're an online ministry considered faithful, faithful by, by most, honestly. But um, this, is, this is just really scary. Uh, this is someone who's attributing inward temptations to Christ. So uh, his name is Ed Shaw. He's a part of, yeah, he's a writer for Gospel Coalition, part of Living Out Ministries with Sam Albury. He says, quote, I'm wanting the young people who come to this event, it's like an event for those who are struggling with sexuality, identity, gender, um, to come to this event to know that Jesus is the one person they can fully trust with their sexualities, identities, and gender because he is both their creator God and a human being who knows what it is like to grapple with a sexuality, identity, and gender. Teenagers today are being presented with such a confusing range of options that they especially need the tender care that Jesus offers all of us as we struggle with what it means to be a human being. So, uh, this is heresy. It's just straight up heresy. He's teaching that Jesus is a sinful being by arguing that Jesus struggles with, he's, in context, it's homosexuality, um, Struggling with, am I a boy or a girl? Like, Jesus, Jesus never struggled with this. And to claim that he did is to argue that he was a fallen being. What this guy's main misunderstanding is, and many of us, I, I even had it in the past, is that um, human nature doesn't by necessity assume that we are inwardly tempted. Inward temptations are post Fall. What I mean by post-fall is after Adam and Eve fell, after they sinned, the whole world broke. Essentially, the whole world broke. And now we are all born with sin natures, the doctrine of original sin. Um, and because of that, now we do struggle with inward temptations. But Jesus, he does not assume a fallen hum- human nature. He assumes 
a perfect human nature pre-fall. He, all right, I'm not going to get into that. He, he just, he does not wrestle with inward temptations. It's pre-fall. Human nature doesn't necessitate wrestling with sexuality and gender. To say that it does means that he has a fallen human nature, which he doesn't, if he did, he cannot take away the sins of the world because he's no longer the spotless lamb of God. In 1 John 3, 5, uh, John writes, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. In his nature, there's no sin. No sin nature, no sin law. He wouldn't be able to take away sins if he did have it. So that's, that's about as far as I think I'm going to go when it comes to temptations, but I'm, I'm going to ground all of that teaching in the sinfulness of desire, and that's what we're going to move into now, um, mainly for the sake of time. But to sum up the main points, James is framing the temptation as one that is driven and produced by evil desires from within an individual, and God has no evil desire. Therefore, he cannot be tempted in this way. Temptations are either from within or without. Jesus only wrestled with temptations from without. They never touched his nature. We, on the other hand, we experience both. So when we experience temptations from within, sin is already at play. When we experience them from without, sin is not necessarily at play. So um, let's look back at James uh, one fourteen and 15, and we'll focus on the desire aspect of the text. James writes, But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, give, gives birth to, de- to death. Sorry. So many people will come to this text, and they'll disagree with the inward temptations not being sinful based off the fact that James writes that after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So they will argue that the desire that was conceived is not necessarily sin because he's making a distinction between the desire and the desire that has given birth to sin. The desire, they'll argue that the desire is not sin until it's birthed, but before that, it's just a desire, neutral. Um, so... Uh, the main error in this interpretation, oh, well, uh, yeah, so the main, the main error in this interpretation is essentially that um, they're failing to understand what James is, or how James is using, or uh, how he's using his illustration. So, for example, when do we as Christians believe that a baby is a baby? We believe a baby is a baby at conception, Right? I think James is doing the same exact thing by saying that sin, by that people saying that sin hasn't been born until it's been birthed into the world, um, is to uh, it's to misunderstand the illustration. We believe that a baby is a baby at conception, just as sin as is a sin at conception before being birthed into the world. Another misunderstanding that this has is failing to understand how, uh, um, how James uses the word for, the word for uh, sin. So James, in his epistle, he uses the word for sin. It's hamartia. He uses it seven times. 
The six other times that he uses it outside of this verse, he's using it in a, as a clear reference to an outward act of sin. So if James is using this as uh, in reference to an outward act of sin six other times, it's not a huge jump to say that in our context, he is doing the same. And what this would mean is that if James is using this term in the way that he does in the entire epistle, then he is by no means saying that sin is not present before its birth. He's just saying an act of sin isn't present until the desire gives birth. Owen Strachan, he's a really faithful teacher of the word, and he does a great job with this text. He says on this specific text, quote, uh, It shows that the metaphorical child to be born is the same in the womb as it is out of it. Lustful desires conceive sin and then birth it. The process from start to finish is immoral. Lust is not neutral in the womb, so to speak, only to become externally evil once acted upon in concrete form. Sinful instincts pop up in us. We experience desire for an object that is ungodly, and we then produce fully formed sinful actions. So what he's saying is that uh, the baby of sinful desire is sin before it's born into the world. Uh, another, another thing that I think that we should at least notice is um, the word for evil desire in our text is uh, a term that could be simply translated as desire. It doesn't necessarily have a negative connotation. It has a negative connotation based off of the context or a positive, positive connotation based off of the context. We in English will translate the term as lust, covet, desire, or even good desire. So for example, my term is epithumia. I could say that I have a desire to obey God's law. That would be a good desire. And the word, I would have an epithumia to obey God's law. I have a good desire to obey God's law. But it also could be used in the sense of, I have a desire to disobey God's law. I have an epithumia to disobey God's law. In that case, we would translate it, I, I have an evil desire to disobey God's law, because it's evil, right? That's how we see it in the NIV, translating it that way. So I think, um, also, yeah, I, I want to repeat John Owen's quote real quick um, to prove that I, I, I think it's very clear that this, this evil desire is sin, but I'm, I'm going to quote John Owen again to refresh us. He says, Now when such a temptation comes from without, it is unto the soul an indifferent thing. So outside coming in, it's indifferent to me. I haven't reacted to it. I'm not sinning yet. It's neither good nor evil unless it be consented unto. But the very proposal from within, it being the soul's own act, is its sin. So because it's coming from within, because it's coming from our natures, our depravity, it's already sin. It's a part of who we are. That's how fallen we are. So I want to see what the rest of the Bible says about this to prove that this evil desire is sin because people will still say that it's not. Um, so let's, let's, look at, uh, let's look at Romans 7, 7 to 8 and see what Paul has to say about desire. Paul in Romans 7, 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. I'm actually not even going to read verse 8 because it's not necessary. Um, 
So this entire chapter is focused on Paul wrestling with sinful desire. For our discussion here, there are just a few things I want us to notice. First, the word for covet is the same word that we saw in James 1, 13 to 15 for the term evil desire. It's epithumia. We see the same word again. It's translated as covet here. Why is it translated as covet? First, he's quoting the Old Testament law. Second, it's because the desire, the coveting, He's desiring an unlawful object for him to have. And he's drawing a direct correlation between the coveting and it breaking God's law. So the coveting is the breaking of God's law, the desiring. So Paul believes desiring is sin because it's breaking God's law. It's pretty simple. Now let's look at what Jesus teaches in Matthew 5. Look with me at verses 27 to 28. He writes, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So I've had a faulty understanding of this text in the past in the sense that I thought Jesus was teaching something new as if the Old Testament law didn't uh, prohibit desiring to commit adultery. And now all of a sudden Jesus is creating a new law essentially by saying that it is sin now all of a sudden to desire to commit adultery. But my, my mistake was failing to see what Jesus was doing. So Jesus here, he's taking the 10th commandment of thou shalt not covet, and he's applying it to the 7th commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And in doing this, I, I believe, I'm, I'm pretty convinced, well, I am convinced, that Jesus is implementing a principle that we see throughout all of Scripture, which is to desire an unlawful object, something that the law prohibits, is to already sin, even though it's not acted upon. So this brings the depth of our sin to a whole new level. This is why the Pharisees couldn't stand before Jesus, because outwardly they looked great, but inwardly they were withering away, whitewashed tombs, dead, essentially. Christianity is a religion that gets at the heart. It changes who we are inside. So, to desire something that's unlawful is sin. And Jesus is teaching the same thing that we, we've been seeing. And guess what the word for lust is in this context? It's epithumeo, which is the verb form of the same root word of epithumia. And it has the same kind of like nuanced connotation, right? It's if I, I can have a desire for something good or I can have a desire for something bad. They call it lust here because it's a desire for something that is unlawful for have, therefore it's lust. So Jesus, he's backing up the same idea as James, Paul, and you, you see, you see the point. So many, uh, mo- uh, not most, a lot of people don't like this. Well, I don't know why people wouldn't like this teaching, but a lot of people don't agree with this teaching. Um, and I'm going to talk about two objections or main objections that people have. One of them is they'll say um, there's a difference between lust and desire in the sense of intensity. So I could have a little bit of desire for another woman and that wouldn't be sin. But once it reaches a level on a scale of intensity of say 50, I've crossed the threshold from pure, innocent desire to lust. But the problem with this, this objection, even though, I mean, it sounds kind of nice, like lust and desire, they're different, which they are in a sense, but um, this interpretation it has no grounds biblically. There's no feet under it. Jesus didn't say when you desire a woman a lot, 
it's sin. He said, if you desire a woman at all, it's sin. Paul says the same thing. Um, not if you covet a lot, it's sin. Just if you covet at all, it's sin. James, the same thing. If you're dragged away at all, you're sinning. The second objection that people, uh, people will use is, and this is much more common in our day, they'll say, chosen, the chosenness of our desire. So they'll say, uh, they'll say that since I didn't choose to be this way, I didn't choose to be a fallen human being who desires sin all the time, therefore God can't hold me responsible for what I desire. He can only hold me responsible for what I do. Um, and this is, this is really popular today. We see this a lot, especially when it comes to what people call same-sex attraction, which is it's just homosexual desire. Um, they'll say the attraction or the, the desire is not sinful. It's only sinful what we do with the desire. And they're saying that because they're taking responsibility away from the individual to say, it's not your fault that you're this way, and it's... There's no chance of you changing, therefore God only holds you responsible for what you do with the desire. We'll, we'll look more into this as we go on. But the simple point I want to make here to argue against this is that nowhere in the Bible does it talk about um, you not being held responsible because you've chosen it. Not one place. We've all inherited Adam's fallen nature. Adam is what's considered our federal representative um, in the sense that if, if all of us as humans, I've heard this illustration once, if all of us as, as humans got together before we were all born and we all voted one person to represent all of humanity, we'd vote for Adam. And then when Adam fell, he represents, he's our federal head, he represents all of us. So when he fell, in essence, we all fall with him. So we all have inherited that sin nature because of that. And we all have depraved desires for different things that we're all responsible for. The Bible makes, like I said before, the Bible makes no such reference to you not being held responsible for what you desire, who you are. All the Bible teaches is personal responsibility for your sin. Yeah, so the point of this is to say this is how fallen we are and basically how in trouble we are. Sins, it's a part of our DNA. It flows through our veins. It comes out all the time. It pollutes everything we do. Uh, John Newton, he, I believe he's the one who wrote Amazing Grace, but he calls himself a wretch. The only reason why he would call himself a wretch is because sin is intertwined with absolutely Everything he does, every thought, every inclination, every desire, it's everywhere. Okay, uh, so many, many people who hold to the view that says that we're not sinning because we haven't chosen it, they're holding to Roman Catholic doctrine of sin without knowing it. Uh, Roman Catholics, I, I love Roman Catholic doctrine in the sense that they're consistent. Uh, but I think they're, they're very wrong. But I, I really do respect the doctrine itself. Um, but anyways, they, they, Roman Catholics will say that the pre-behavioral aspect of our sin, they call it concupiscence, it's, it's not sin that holds us before God. So the pre-behavioral desire doesn't hold us guilty before God. And when you think about it, this makes complete sense. This is why I say I like Roman Catholic doctrine, because it's consistent. They say... 
when, when you think about it in, in relation to their doctrine of justification, they say faith plus works equals salvation. Um, and most of us think that that means that we can earn our salvation, which it, it does in a sense. But the works part of that formula is um, them saying that you, you actually need to be righteous in your being in order for a holy, perfect God to declare you righteous before him. And we'll talk about the, the, the Reformed Protestant view of that in a minute, but it makes sense. If my pre-behavioral aspect of sin isn't sin that holds me before holds me guilty before God then I can say with Paul in Philippians 3 uh, by the works of the law I was flawless I can say that probably most of the Pharisees could have said that that's not that crazy of a concept to say that I've never acted on a desire that came from within that's what the Pharisees were. That's what they did. But their hearts were not changed. That's the difference. And that's why the Roman Catholic view of sin and why this misunderstanding of inward temptations, that's why this is so dangerous. And that's why we need to be careful about drawing these lines and making these distinctions. Because in their view, it means that I can have my own righteousness before God. Therefore, God is obligated to justify me in his sight. But the Protestant view, the Reformed view, um, is, it's in uh, direct contrast to that. It says that you cannot have any righteousness of your own. And the reason is because of this, the concupiscence. It's the pre-behavioral aspect, the sin that flows through our DNA and affects the way we think, the way we feel, the way we desire, the way we act, everything. Because of that, we cannot be righteous before a perfect and holy God. So we need what is considered, or what's called an alien righteousness, the righteousness of another. This is why Jesus came to die. This is why he came to live the perfect life. Because we can't. We are unable, incapable. We don't have the ability. So God knew this and God sent Jesus into the world to live the perfect life and to die on the cross for the guilt of our sins, to pay the punishment that we deserve to appease God's wrath so that when we believe in him, God credits Jesus' righteousness to the individual. And then what I mean by that is God credits the righteousness to the, the sinful individual and we are still sinners, but Christ's righteousness lays over us. So then when we stand before God, when we die, God will see Christ's righteousness and not our sin. And we attain that we get that, we are credited that, when we put our faith in what Jesus did, who he was, and his, his perfect death on the cross. This is why this teaching is such poison, because in the end, they're attacking the gospel, because they're attacking the person and the work of Christ, because they're attacking his sinless nature. And that's why, that's why this is so dangerous. And like, like I said in the beginning, to gain a grasp of the depth of our sin is it's 
I, I love to think about it, even though it's, it's so against our culture and so much of like what we, what we teach our kids and what the culture is teaching our kids. Oh, love yourself. Love who you are. You're great just the way you are. Be who you are. But the Bible does not paint that picture. It paints the picture of don't be who you are. Turn from who you are. Hate your sin. Mortify it. Repent. Turn to God. Trust in him. It's, this isn't a self-help gospel. This is a, a, a new birth gospel, a regenerating gospel. Uh, so this is why I think this is such an important teaching, because it's, it's an attack, and it's a nuanced attack, and it's from the inside. It's not from the outside. This is from within the church. You will hear a lot of this language. So... Right now, I mean, if, if you haven't trusted in Christ, you will either die and you will face God and you will have your own righteousness, which is not righteousness at all. It's filthy rags and God will send you to hell for all eternity and you will pay for your sins. Or you can trust in Christ, come to him, cry out to him, say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And God will forgive you. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to him. Confess your sin. Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ. He will take your sin. He will forgive you and he will give you his righteousness. So that when you stand before God, God, you stand before God and God will say, why should I let you in heaven? You say, God, you shouldn't. You shouldn't let me in. I am an unrighteous, filthy sinner. But there is one who died on the behalf of sinners, and I have trusted in him. And his righteousness, I trust that his righteousness is given to me. And, he, and when God gives that righteousness to you based off of the faith that you put in Christ, you can now stand before God, and God can let you into heaven. He will gladly accept you into heaven, not just can. So I'm going to come back to the point uh, and sum all this up for you real quick. It doesn't matter whether or not you chose to be born with these desires. At any given moment, uh, you're still held responsible for it because in reality, it's just an outflow of who you are. That your desires, it's nobody else's, and the Bible paints no other picture other than this. So now uh, I want to talk about some implications of this teaching um, and then try and help us walk through a situation where uh, we might experience this inward temptation. Um, so first, implications. The first implication is that sin starts before the act. It starts in the conception of the desire. Therefore, our repentance needs to go deeper. So we're constantly sinning by what we're drawn towards and what we desire. So this means that when we repent, we don't just repent because, oh man, I watched porn, or oh man, I... Uh, hit my brothers, whatever it is, right? You don't just repent of the act, you repent of the heart's jump to want to do that. That's where the repentance must, must go. And that's the only time that true heart change can actually happen. The second implication is that in our sanctification, we can expect a change in desire. If, for example, if desire is sin then that sin can be sanctified. Therefore, it can lessen, it can weaken, it can even possibly go away. Although we're not promised that in this lifetime, but we are promised 
sanctification. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, uh, Or do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. I believe that when Paul is saying that is what some of you were, he's talking about being, who you are in the heart, not just what you're doing. So when he says that is what some of you were, you're not that way anymore in your heart. You're changing. You are changed. Only the gospel has the power to do that. And this truth is so encouraging for Christians because so much of what I'm going to go back to the, the bad interpretation again. So much of what they're teaching is that if this isn't sin, it can't change. But what this is teaching is that if your desires are sin, they can change. Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So what he's saying is that those, because those, he says evil desires, because those evil desires are sin, they can be put to death. If they're not sin, they can't be put to death. What's the need to put them to death? There's no need. So we're actually commanded to do this. And in our putting to death of sin, true heart change will occur. Okay, so let's just go through a real life example. This is the, the last part of the sermon. We're almost done. Doing pretty good. <laughs> Better than I thought I would. Uh, <laughs> so say, for example, right, you walk out of church today, and as soon as you get out, I mean, this has probably been happening this whole sermon either way. You have a desire for something that's sinful. How do you handle it? What is the process that you go through in your mind and your heart to mortify it, to actually see true heart change? The first step is Confession. This is where a lot of people are failing. In 1 John 1, 9 to 10, uh, John writes, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we have not sinned, we have made him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So what is meant by the word confess here? It simply means to agree with. So in our confessing, we're just agreeing with God that our desire is sin. We simply agree with it. And if we don't agree with him, then we're saying, God, you're a liar, my desire is not sin, and his word is not in you. So that's the first step. Step two is repent. Repentance is simply turning from your sin and turning to God. So when that desire comes up, you turn from the desire, not just the act, the desire. The repentance needs to go deep. You turn from the desire and you turn to God, ask for forgiveness. In order to repent, you have to hate the sin. You have to hate the desire. If you do not hate it, you will not repent of it. You will keep it there. You'll fest, it'll fester. It'll live in you. And maybe you won't act on it, but you've just been keeping it in your heart. And it's, it's not the same. It's worse to act on it, but it's still there. The third step is to kill it. John Owen is famously known, I quoted him earlier, to be saying in his, in his writing, The Mortification of Sin. He says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. He says in his book, our goal in killing sin is for it to completely go away. But in this life, uh, that's not necessarily 
an automatic expectation, but our expectations and the mortification of sin and our killing of sin is so that we see a progression and the weakening of the desire and a lessening in the frequency of it. So if I'm someone who struggles with whatever sin it may be, I want to see it get weak. So when the desire pops up, it doesn't control me. And I also want to see uh, a lessening in the frequency of that desire. Maybe when you first begin attacking it, it's happening 24 times a day. Maybe the next week, 12. And this, this, you know what I'm saying. It gets down to eventually maybe once a month, once a year, right? As we increase in sanctification. That's the goal. And how are we to put it to death? I believe that we're to put it to death by the Spirit. In Romans 8.13, Paul writes, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And I think what he means by by the Spirit is, um, obviously the Holy Spirit is the one doing it, but I'm, I'm more asking what's the means that the Holy Spirit uses to mortify sin in us. And I believe that that's the Word of God. So I think as we are in the Word, as we're continually reading, studying, uh, knowing, memorizing, as those desires pop up, we have the Word of God that pops up into our mind and fights that desire. And it'll happen naturally. The more that you read, the more you know. But a lot of us don't know the word well enough to even be able to mortify sin. We, we, don't, we simply just don't know it well enough. So rather than having a sword, you have a little butter knife and you're trying to kill sin. And you just can't get, get through the skin of it. So you've got to know the word. Because that's the main means that the Spirit uses to mortify sin. Number four. Uh, know that there is a way of escape. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. I believe that when this is applied to inward temptations, I think what Paul means when um, he won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear is that uh, you, God will give you a way out so you don't have to act on the desire. So just know that you don't have to act on it. And the final step, and this is the one that I see myself doing more than any of the others, is simply cling to Christ. Like, I mean, every time a desire pops up, a sinful desire pops up in you, when your heart jumps at something, you're not going to be like, all right, step one, step two, step three. You're not going to do that. So the natural gut reaction of the Christian should be cling to Christ. Cry out to him for mercy. Say, change me. I don't want this anymore. Have mercy on me. Hold on to him. Paul Washer, uh, I, I love this guy. He's like the holiest guy I ever heard preach. But he, uh, he, he recently said, um, I survey my life and I see the countless failures and sins. I have only one hope, that Jesus Christ shed his blood for my soul. He is my only consolation after all these years. And that's coming from like the holiest guy I ever, ever read or heard. Um, honestly, it's scary to sit under his preaching. But we're in the same boat as that. We have only one hope in life and death, and that's Christ. And either you will die with his righteousness or you'll die with the right, your own. So that's it. Uh, to conclude, um, my hope for us today is mainly that we grasp the depth of our depravity so that we can see the beauty of Christ more clearly.
I want to encourage you, feel the weight of your sin. Let that keep you down. Feel the burden of the law and then go to Christ and feel that weight lifted off. Because only in Christ can that weight be lifted off. Let's pray. God, I I thank you that you have not only given us your law to show us what sin is, what pleases you, but you've also provided a way for us to be saved from our absolute inability uh, to live up to your law. God, I pray that you would help us see our sinfulness more clearly, that we would accept the truth of your word, because your word is truth. I pray that you would increase our faith, uh, help us to get through this week. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.